Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. As the White House battles leak after leak, is there an organized network trying to undermine the Trump presidency from inside the U.S. government? Then, who are the 500 private citizens with unprecedented access to Donald Trump on the weekends? The Times unmasks the secret list of Mar-a-Lago members. It's Tuesday, February 21st. Yes, John. Very, very serious. I've gone to all of the uh, folks in charge of the various agencies, and we're, I've actually uh, called the Justice Department to look into the leaks. Those are criminal leaks. In recent days, we've started to hear talk of a possible explanation for this cascade of government leaks that have so inflamed President Trump since his inauguration. We are looking into that very seriously. It's a criminal act. Leaks of his executive orders before they're issued, of classified conversations with foreign leaders, and of infighting inside the White House. The source, we're told, may be something that could define this new presidency as much as the president himself. It's called The Deep State. Some supporters of Trump, including Breitbart News, are now accusing the intelligence agencies of attempting to wage a deep state coup against the president. The American deep state of government agencies and military intelligence has, in effect, gone to war with Donald Trump. I think it's really the deep state versus the president. They typically exercise their power in secret, in the dark. The deep state is the notion that leaders come and go, but there's a permanent bureaucracy, and often it refers to the security bureaucracy, the military mm -hmm. and the intelligence agencies, and that they kind of go on. Scott Shane has covered national security and the U.S. intelligence community for decades. And that, you know, that in some ways what happens at the top of, of a government may be, to a greater or lesser degree, window dressing. And that, uh, you know, sort of beneath the surface are the real powers that decide what's going to happen and that sometimes discard the, the nominal leaders and replace them by, with somebody else. Hmm. An example that's sort of close to my heart, I lived in Russia and reported from Moscow in the Gorbachev era. And it was, you know, a very tumultuous time when essentially people were overthrowing peacefully the Communist Party and the Soviet state. The KGB was denounced publicly. 
And, you know, a lot of us thought, wow, you know, well, that's over. The Soviet system is gone. The KGB is out of luck. Well, then, you know, what happens? Basically, you know, almost a decade pass. And then who becomes president? Well, a kind of mid-level KGB guy named Vladimir Putin. And, you know, I think that was very much the deep state resurfacing to take control. But I think that's what we what we mean by deep. It's sort of buried down there. And every once in a while, it can sort of rise up and assert its power. So is that what's happening right now in the United States? Well, I think there's a huge difference between a country like Russia and the United States. We may have a deep state but it's not nearly as powerful as it is in many other countries. Hmm. I think there are so many competing power centers here that, you know, the suggestion that the deep state is one thing, it's a sort of unified, shadowy bunch of guys, you know, who who sit around and saying, well, now we're going to make our move. We're going to undermine Donald Trump. I just think that's bogus when applied to the United States. I think it it sort of misrepresents the reality of of how this country operates. But, you know, I am reminded of way back in the 90s when I was at the Baltimore Sun, I, I did a sort of explanatory series about the National Security Agency. And there was a deputy director of NSA who'd been there for many, many years. And he was a bureaucrat. He was, you know, sort of permanent there. And usually the head of NSA is a general or an admiral who comes in for a term of three years or five years. So the, the directors come and go, but the deputy directors stay for much longer. And you know, people told me that this deputy director would wait for a year or two to see whether he could trust the new director wow. before he would let the new director of the NSA in on some of the more sensitive programs that the agency was running. Now, that does give you a, a, a sense of how the deep state can operate, you know, in a place like the NSA. But I don't think it's it's a term that describes what's really happening in the U.S. for the most part. And yet it feels like there is something distinct going on here. And I guess that gets back to what Trump has done. And it is perhaps to have essentially questioned the fundamental workings of government bureaucracy, Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's certainly true that there are a lot of people upset with the new administration, which to some degree, you know, is always true. This is just a much more dramatic, obviously, change of direction, which produces more leaks. Mm-hmm. I mean, under under Bush, we learned that the CIA had secret prisons, that the CIA was using so-called enhanced interrogation techniques you know, which were essentially, in many cases, torture. The NSA was eavesdropping inside the United States without court orders, without warrants. All those things came from leakers. So I think we're seeing sort of the traditional leaker whistleblower role, which is a standard part of the functioning of American society and American government. I think we're just seeing that sort of on steroids for a while. And finally, do you think that what we're calling here, although this is an evolving phrase, the deep state, is it trying to end the presidency of Donald Trump or is it just trying to find ways to hold it accountable, to hold it in check? I think, you know, that's the problem with calling something in the U.S. the deep state. 
you know, because they're basically individuals scattered through the government. Some are determined to end Donald Trump's presidency and will do everything they, within their power to, to, you know, help with that cause. Others totally accept the idea that Trump is president and may admire certain things about him. But, you know, they have a program that they don't want to die or they have another program they want to promote. But I do think the, you know, the tensions between the bureaucracy and the president may be greater at this moment than in any other time in modern American history. And so it does seem very likely that there are going to be some real collisions, you know, before they work out some kind of way of working with one another to make the government function. Scott, thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. We'll be right back. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more. Palm Beach is home to one of the most famous estates in the world, Mar-a-Lago. It's the crown jewel in a vast real estate empire. It is 110,000 square feet of opulence that has been painstakingly restored to its original condition by a famous businessman who knew a good thing when he saw it. Purchased by Donald Trump in 1985. Well, I think Mar-a-Lago is certainly the most spectacular state in the United States. And interestingly, when Prince Charles came to Palm Beach, he came to play polo and to see Mar-a-Lago. And the first thing he did is see Mar-a-Lago. And I say, you may be the only person I know that has a house that's nicer than this, meaning Buckingham Palace. And he said, well, I'm not so sure about that. 31 years later, Trump is president, and Mar-a-Lago is his weekend retreat. So it's a a private club that was initially uh, a private property by Marjorie Merriweather Post. My colleague Maggie Haberman covers the White House, and she's been to Mar-a-Lago. She was sort of a socialite, and she had this vision of turning this property into literally a winter White House. That was what she talked about, and that's why she donated it to the federal government. The federal government had so no interest. Um, So Trump was able to purchase it after negotiating. And and he was very clever about how he did it, but he was able to kind of back the government into a corner by picking up different parcels. Um, In the 90s, when he was facing various, I believe, various various bankruptcies, uh, he turned it into a private club, a members-only club. Since Trump's election, reporters have been trying to figure out who else shares the estate with him, people willing to pay membership fees of up to $200,000 a year. Maggie obtained a list of the members and worked with political reporter Nick Confessori to track them down. So you can walk into this place, hang out in this place, and see the president. Just like that, because it is his home. And he's also, um, he's really proud of it. Uh, I was there right before New Year's uh, when he was still the president-elect. I went to someone's guest. And Trump and I have a a complicated uh, relationship uh, as subject and reporter. Um, Do you? (laughs) As as he does with many reporters who have covered him rigorously, uh, but I've also covered him for a very long time. Uh, and he was 
he was very pleasant when I saw him there, but he was he was clearly very proud of it. And, you know, he was doing what he what he often does when you're around him at one of his properties. He's kind of showing you things and playing tour guide. He doesn't do this really as president anymore, but he used to walk from table to table like a greeter. He loves being around people. He loves the constant inputs and contacts. And and he likes hosting this big party. So who are the members of Mar-a-Lago? Well, it's a mixture of old Trump friends and new Trump friends, doctors, lawyers, dentists. We should say, you know, most of these members are our members, and it's a social club first. But it, it happens that they also have these political and policy interests that are going to intersect with the president's role. And now they have this unprecedented and totally, you know, I'm out of words for it because there isn't anything like this in presidential history. What do you mean? Uh, it is a summer residence or a winter White House for the president where people pay to come visit him. And that has never existed for any American president, including all the rich ones we've had with mansions who would retreat to Hyde Park or Kennebunkport and do the people's business. This is different. You have that, and then people pay to come see you and hang out. Right. It's as if Crawford were somehow charging rent while George W. Bush was in residence. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. According to the club officials, interest has spiked since he became president. So, you know, there is clearly some value-add proposition for some people, whether it's doing business or just proximity to power. Um, but it does raise this this interesting question, especially because uh, unlike the White House, where we get visitors' logs, we have no idea who is going in and out of Mar-a-Lago because uh, the membership list is not public. We were able to review three different versions of it, but members can also bring guests and that's not public at all. And so you could be a member and have as many as 10 guests a night and that's complicated. So you guys have talked, both of you, to a bunch of these members. What have they been telling you about their experience at the club recently? bunch of them said no thank you and hung up. Um, but those who didn't do that uh, say that it's become a different experience, that it is much more crowded. I spoke to Jeff Green, um, who is a uh, billionaire real estate developer. Um, he said he likes it. He said he just finds it sort of engaging and he likes being around Trump in that setting. He described Trump to me at the time as, you know, it's sort of like going to Disneyland and knowing that Mickey Mouse is there every day now. Um, <laughs> and he did not mean that offensively. He really didn't. But he is um, emblematic, I think, of a lot of experiences that people are having. They're dying to be around him on a normal day because he's a celebrity and he's the owner of the club. And now it's just taken on this different patina. What are members telling you, Nick? Uh, well, the ones who have talked to us uh, have said this is a social club. You know, we're not there to see Trump, uh, so they're they're a bit defensive about the idea uh, that this is about proximity to power. But it's interesting; proximity can breed influence in ways that are not always intended by the people who are nearby. Hmm. So, one great anecdote from Richard Lefrac, who Maggie spoke to. Richard Lefrac, who is this developer from New York, who's another one of these snowbirds who goes down to Florida. He's there talking to the president, and Mr. Trump kind of brings up. The wall, like how to build the wall of Mexico. The wall. Yeah. yeah the wall. And he asked, so how come you can't do it, Richard? He said the price is too much. And he said, would you, would you consider this? So just to clarify, the president turns to a developer, and friend, 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 member of the friend. club, yes. and says, I guess uh, somewhat playfully, but who knows, no, well, I why think, can't you just build the wall between serious. Mexico no, and the uh, Mr. Lefrac uh, said, I'd heard about it from someone else, and I, I, 
I called him to talk to him about it. He seemed a li- he was a little startled that I knew about it, and he was also a little startled that that Trump had said it. Um, but the way he <laughs> described it as a, a very brief passing moment in a in a conversation that was a social call that he was paying to Trump, and he he is he is truly a friend of Trump's. Um, where they were talking about, I guess Trump brought up the wall and he said that he had seen uh, estimates that he considered absurd of like $20 billion, what, what the cost? cost would be. And he said, you know, d- would you consider doing it? Um, and Lefrac was said sort of, I, I thought you were having the Department of Homeland <laughs> Security. Security deal with this. Uh, and Trump said, yes, yes, I, you know, I may have General Kelly call you. Kelly meaning uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, Chief John Kelly. And Lefrac made clear to me that he he has no interest in doing this. He was struck by how his, his friend, who was used to being sort of this get-what-I-want-when-I-want developer, is at the mercy of this massive procurement process um, and, and is discovering that the gears of government turn pretty slowly. The story with with Lefrac actually makes an interesting point as well, which is this is not necessarily a den of corruption, right? But it shows that in his way, Trump is sort of parochial and his New York circle, his personal circle, is sort of his political circle and his presidential circle. So the people he seeks for advice exactly. are the people within arm's reach. So the big and maybe somewhat unanswerable question is, are these members actively angling for influence with the president or with his aides when they're down there? Do we know? We don't know for sure, but I think it's clear that they have influence even if they aren't angling for it. That's what they are. They are present. They're being asked their advice on major initiatives. um, And they could give good advice. But again, this intersection here of the public and the private and the personal and public policy is unprecedented in American history. There was a pretty remarkable scene at Mar-a-Lago about a week or so ago that illustrated all of the quandaries of having the presidency move to a members-only club that has lots of people who are outside of the presidential orbit, which was that the prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, and Donald Trump learn about the ballistic missile launch out of North Korea in real time. Well, how should we think about the fact that that occurred there? I don't think the problem was that it occurred there. I think the problem was that they continued over their stakes on the patio. There was a problem of sort of government as like dinner theater for the Mar-a-Lago attendees. And that really was what this was like. This guy who posted like play-by-plays on Facebook of here they are, here's somebody using an iPhone flashlight to help Trump see documents better. Also posted a picture of himself posing with the person who carries the nuclear codes. That was striking. And right, I think Americans uh, may question that. I want to ask you both how central you think Mar-a-Lago is going to keep being to the Trump presidency. Extremely. I think it's going to be the White House two or three days a week and on vacations for the next four years. I've been covering this man for, you know, in various points for 20 years-ish. This is the happiest I've ever seen him is when he is there. He is relaxed. He's able to move around. Mar-a-Lago, he gets to just kind of be free. He is not somebody who really likes going out to other people's restaurants. He likes being at his own properties. He always has. He flew home almost every night during the campaign to sleep in his own bed. Um, This is a place where he can be a little freer. Thank you both. Thank you. And thank you, Michael. Here's what else you need to know today. So I just uh, wanted to announce uh, we've been working all weekend, very diligently, very hard. After a highly public search, President Trump has chosen a replacement for Michael Flynn. General H.R. McMaster will become the national security advisor. 
He's a man of tremendous talent and tremendous experience. The president announced the choice on Monday from Mar-a-Lago. Mr. President, thank you very much. I'd just like to say what a privilege it is to be able to continue serving our nation. I'm grateful to you for that opportunity. And I look forward to joining the national security team and doing everything I can to advance and protect the, the interests of the American people. Thank you very much, sir. You're going to do a great job. Here's what we know about McMaster. He wrote a book, Dereliction of Duty, about the failure of American generals to stand up to civilian superiors during the Vietnam War. And he openly criticized decisions made by the second Bush White House in Iraq. We were like a blind man, McMaster said, trying to do the right thing, but breaking a lot of things. Finally, And so today is my privilege on behalf of President Trump to express the strong commitment of the United States to continued cooperation and partnership with the European Union. In Europe, Vice President Mike Pence is trying to reassure American allies that despite whatever President Trump has said, the U.S. is still committed to major economic and military partnerships in the region. Whatever our differences, our two continents share the same heritage, the same values, and above all, the same purpose, to promote peace and prosperity through freedom, democracy, and the rule of law. And to those objectives, we will remain committed. But back in the U.S., Trump further complicated Pence's message by suggesting there was a terrorist attack in the European country of Sweden. There was not. And by declaring on Monday that refugees in Sweden are responsible for a surge in crime there, there's no evidence of that either. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com slash daily, netsuite.com slash daily.